This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. It's Sunday, September 8th. I'm Margaret Brennan, and this is Face the Nation. There is breaking news overnight as President Trump announces he has canceled plans for a secret Camp David retreat this weekend with the Taliban to finalize a peace deal in Afghanistan. The president's announcement by tweet said that his top secret meeting had been immediately scrapped following the Taliban claiming credit for a bombing in Afghanistan that killed 12 people, including a U.S. serviceman. But there are questions this morning about why the talks fell apart and why the U.S. was embracing the Taliban in the first place. Late last night, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo traveled to Dover, Delaware, to observe the return of Sergeant Elise Loreto Ortiz. Ortiz is the 16th U.S. serviceman killed in Afghanistan this year. Secretary Pompeo joins us today along with former Secretary of Defense James Mattis, who led U.S. troops fighting the Taliban in Afghanistan after 9-11. We'll also hear from Delaware Democratic Senator Chris Coons. Plus, a brand new CBS News Battleground tracker shows one candidate making important gains. We'll have the surprising results and we'll have analysis on all the news. It's all ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. Just days before the 18th anniversary of the attacks against America on 9-11, President Trump tweets out a bombshell. He invited Taliban leaders to Camp David this weekend for a summit with Afghanistan's President Ashraf Ghani. Then President Trump abruptly called off the diplomacy just days after U.S. officials had said a peace agreement was imminent. Negotiations had been ongoing for nearly a year between the U.S. and the Taliban to get that insurgent group to join the government of Afghanistan and stop trying to overthrow it. That goal would allow for the U.S. to withdraw troops. A senior Afghan official confirmed to me this morning that President Ghani had been informed in advance that the Taliban had been invited to Camp David and that it was the U.S. that called off Ghani's visit. It was not a cancellation made in protest by Ghani. I'm told the reason for the U.S. calling it off goes deeper than Trump's tweet, in which he claimed it was the Thursday bombing that caused him to call off the talks. The chain of events also suggests that is the case. Our Charlie Daggett is in Kabul, Afghanistan this morning with more. Charlie? Well, Margaret, moments ago, we put the direct question to President Ghani's spokesman. Was President Ghani invited to Camp David? Three times we asked, each time we were told no comment, which just underlines the sensitivities over that issue here. What I can tell you is this was an impromptu press conference called in direct reaction to those tweets and developments overnight. Now, the other takeaway is when President Trump openly criticized the Taliban for intensifying violence, including that explosion here in Kabul that killed a U.S. soldier. Spokesman told us President Ghani was happy to hear that and that they're, quote, finally on the same page. Margaret. That's Charlie Daggett in Kabul. We turn now to Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Mr. Secretary, good morning. Good morning. Good uh, to be with you. Good to have you here. It's been an eventful 24 hours. Uh, do you deny that there were other issues that played into the cancellation of these talks? Margaret, you have to go back to first principles and what we've been trying to do for, uh, frankly, two and a half years of the Trump administration in Afghanistan. President Trump made clear uh, we wanted to do everything we could to reduce risk 
to the United States, that we would not have terror strike the United States from Afghanistan as it did on 9-11, and we would never give up protecting the American people. But at the same time, uh, we wanted to make sure we got the force posture right, that you know, the 30-plus billion dollars a year that we're spending there is not a sustainable model, and he wanted to reduce that. Uh, so we entered negotiations with the Afghan government. We've worked closely with President Ghani over the past months. We've worked with other Afghan leaders. We've worked with the Taliban to try and uh, get the Taliban to commit to reducing violence. They mm-hmm. had committed to doing so. To get them to uh, agree to talk to their other Afghan, Afghan brothers and sisters, something that multiple administrations have tried to do for, goodness, 15-plus years now. We had that. Uh, and to get them to make a public commitment to break with al-Qaeda, something that as far back as uh, the Bush administration Americans had been trying to get. We got that, too. Uh, and they so, never agreed to a ceasefire. The violence uh, the, has been in, so, uh, intensifying so, throughout. So back, back to where we were. Uh, we were working to deliver that set of outcomes so that we could make good decisions about American treasure and risk. Uh, I was just a few hours ago out at Dover Air Force Base for the dignified transfer of the remains of Sergeant First Class Barreto. I was with his family. Uh, amazing patriots. I led the CIA where we had officers in harm's way taking real risk every night. Uh, President Trump is committed to reducing that risk so that there will be fewer fallen American soldiers, heroes. Uh, this is this is the mission set. We're trying to do that through peace and reconciliation negotiations. Uh, I, I hope that we can get back to doing that, but it's going to take more than words. As President Trump demonstrated, if, if the Taliban can't live up to their commitments, if they're going to continue to do the things that they've been doing, and mm-hmm. as we approach this uh, decision point in the discussions with the Afghans, they blow up and blow up Kabul and kill an American, uh, President Trump will never do that. He, he walked away in Hanoi uh, from North Koreans when mm-hmm. they wouldn't uh, do a deal that made sense for America. Uh, he'll do that with the Iranians when the Chinese moved away from the trade agreement that they had promised us they would make. He broke off those conversations, too. I hope we can get to this place. It would be good for the Afghan people. And Mm -hmm. if we can get it right, it'll be good for American national security as well. Certainly. 16 Americans have been killed in Afghanistan this year. Um, The president said on August 29th that he's taking U.S. troops down to 8,600. Is that still the plan? Is that happening? We're going to have to take a good look at that. We're going to always, as we every time we make decisions, and I've watched the president, this will be the president, the Department of Defense's decision about what our force posture will ultimately be. Uh, we so want that to make, order has not been given, and he does not intend to do that yet. That's we, up for we, consideration. We want to make sure every place that there is the risk of terror to the United States, not just Afghanistan, in the Sahel, in the Philippines. We have terror risk all across the world. We want to make sure always that we have the right number of forces, the right composition of our forces. We've got great partners in Afghanistan with our NATO partners who are there fighting alongside of us as well. President Trump will always make the decision about what the right level of American military activity is. And as I think he suggested... So he's is, standing by that decision, uh, though? That's what I, I think, as you saw in his tweet last night, um, you know, we've killed over 1,000 Taliban in just the last 10 days. Uh, so it has not been the case that we've been negotiating with our hands tied behind our back. Uh, unfortunately, applying military pressure to the Taliban is necessary to get the negotiated outcome that we're looking for. And we're going we're gonna to keep at that. And we'll always protect America. So 14,000 is where it stays for the foreseeable future. I can't answer that question. Ultimately, the president. Okay, decision. because it was in the deal that within 135 days uh, it was going down to 8,600, and the president said that was happening. We, we, are, we are absolutely intent upon ensuring that we reduce the risk that we'll have more folks coming back through Dover. Um, I know you went to that dignified transfer um, last night, and that had to be an incredibly moving moment. Uh, it is the fact that those deaths have continued, that the Taliban never agreed to a ceasefire, that it is the week of 9-11, that this was Camp David, that has caused some concern even among Republican allies of the president, uh, Congresswoman Liz Cheney out this morning saying that no member of the Taliban should ever go to Camp David. That was where U.S. leaders fled to as safe haven the night of 9-11. Who told the president that this was the appropriate place for the Taliban to visit. You yourself have called them terrorists. Yeah. Look, I, I don't talk about internal negotiation or deliberations and who said what to whom and when. I've, I've honored that for two and a half years now. Uh, but make no mistake, we were very thoughtful. Uh, we thought about this a long time. And ultimately, the president made the decision that this was the right place. Uh, we, we know the history of Camp David. Uh, it's where peace has been negotiated 
many, many times. And sadly, uh, you often have to deal with some pretty bad characters to get peace. I, uh, I'd say to anybody who say you shouldn't negotiate with the Taliban, tell me how else they'd like us to talk to to try and get reconciliation in Afghanistan, something, well, that, the Af- the something, that, the Afghan pe- something that the Afghan people want mm-hmm. and something that would be a great thing for America's service members and for American national security. We're, we, we, we understand who the Taliban are. We're clear-eyed. And I assure you that even today, on the ground, General Miller has all the authority he needs to make sure he preserves and protects American fighting forces there and takes it to the bad guys. So we're, we're still at this hard. We'll still be at it hard. In the end, we hope that we can find a solution that reduces the level of violence and increases the probability that we won't have to have more American lives destroyed, more heroes returned. Had the Taliban ever accepted the invitation to come to Camp David? Yes. Because in a statement today to Tolo News, they said that they were invited at the end of August, but that they postponed it until an agreement had been signed. That agreement was not signed. uh, That's correct. There's been some confusion. Uh, I I think there are other folks speaking. It's uh, uh, suffice it to say, we we were confident that we were going to be able to have these meetings, what would be this afternoon at Camp David. And why was that meeting called off? Yeah, President was very clear. Well, he said they didn't deliver off on Thursday after this killing. But as I said, 16 U.S. service people have been killed. And throughout that, U.S. negotiators have continued to come back to the negotiating table. Yes, ma'am. And we've given better than we've gotten, I can assure you. And I want to assure the American people of that as well. Uh, It's not a war of attrition. That's not my point. Uh, my point is that we um, uh, we didn't do what previous administrations have done when they entered into negotiations. They they were incapable of fighting and talking. We we did both. Uh, we continued to protect the United States of America during those tough negotiations. Uh, you know, as for the timing, I'm not going to get into it because it's uh, not appropriate. But know this: uh, the president ultimately made the conclusion that the meetings today wouldn't deliver on the outcome that he's demanding we get for the American people. And when he saw that. When he saw that they couldn't deliver on the reduction in violence commitments that they had made, mm-hmm. he said there's no sense in having this meeting. Mr. Secretary, a lot on your plate, a lot to talk to you about. We have to leave it there for today. Thank you very much, Margaret. We turn now to Secretary Pompeo's former colleague, Secretary of Defense James Mattis. He is also a retired Marine Corps general and the author of Call Sign Chaos, Learning to Lead. Thank you for being here. Good morning to you. Good morning, Margaret. Good to be here. Thousands of Americans have died at the hands of the Taliban in Afghanistan. They gave safe haven to Osama bin Laden to plan the 9-11 attacks. Did you ever think you'd see the day when the Taliban was invited to Camp David? Well, it was a surprise, uh, Margaret, but I would say that all wars eventually come to an end, and I salute efforts to try to end that war, uh, no doubt. Uh, Secretary Pompeo, just uh, before we... Speaking here, he mentioned that we have to stay true to first principles, and I think that we are seeing what he said come true. But you were involved from the very beginning of this war mm-hmm. um, in the invasion in 2001. In your experience, can the Taliban ever be trusted to uh, make a clean break with terrorists and honor a diplomatic deal? Well, you're going to the heart of the issue right there. Can they be trusted? Uh, You remember when we reduced nuclear weapons with Russia, we talked about trust but verify. In this case, with this group, I think you want to verify, then trust. Uh, We've asked them, uh, demanded that they break with al-Qaeda since the Bush administration. They've refused to do so. They murdered 3,000 innocent people citizens of 91 countries on 9-11. We should never forget that, that the Taliban hid those people among them, refused to break with them, and have refused to this day to break. So I think Secretary Pompeo say, saying go back to first principles is exactly the right thing to do. But every single Democrat running for president is promising to bring the troops home. President mm-hmm. Trump campaigned on bringing the troops mm-hmm. home. Yeah. You're saying just pulling out is the wrong decision. Margaret, Can you remind people why there needs to be a continued presence there? Right. The fact is we need to maintain an influence there until the government of Afghanistan, the people of Afghanistan are strong enough to deny Afghanistan as a safe haven. The uh, Taliban pre- control so much territory right Well, now. they do. And, and wars go like that sometimes. But the point is that you may want a war over. You may even declare a war over. But the enemy gets a vote, a, a fact brought home to me repeatedly over my 40 years of service. If you had to fight this war again, 
And I know you don't get do-overs. Mm-hmm. But would you have done something differently? Well, you can always look back and hopefully learn from what you did, learn from the lessons of, uh, of the reality on the battlefield, that sort of thing. But I think the fundamentals of forcing uh, al-Qaeda and terrorist groups out of those safe havens, ensuring that the Taliban do not give them safe havens, those goals should be foremost. And any other goals we then attach to those should be secondary. Don't let them distract you from that primary goal. And you think America got distracted? I, I believe we did, whether it was the war in Iraq or we are back there and we're trying to do perhaps some people say too much uh, in the country. You have to embrace the culture you're in. You don't surrender what we're about, but you cannot walk in and say you're going to turn another culture around in a matter of a couple of years uh, from things that they've stood for over the generations. So you just have to accept at times you have to have limited goals, but you should not have limited resources. You should put in whatever resources are necessary. So when our diplomats negotiate, Mm -hmm. they negotiate from a position of strength. You have made clear that you will not speak ill of President Trump. You will not speak about him, um, you say, out of respect. Uh, In your book, you do talk about policy disagreements with past presidents that Mm -hmm. you served under with Bush and with President Obama as well. When the drawdown from Iraq, you wrote about Vice President Biden, and you said you were telling him what you were seeing on the ground in Iraq and warning him of what a pullout would do. You wrote he exuded the confidence of a man whose mind was made up, perhaps even indifferent to considering the consequences, were he judging the situation incorrectly. Well, I was writing a history book at that point, Margaret, because I started writing this book in 2013. It was done pretty much by version five by 2017. Had I known the former vice president was going to run for office, I assure you I would not have probably been that that forthcoming. Why do I do that? What should people understand about what you meant there? Were you raising questions about his judgment? I think the Obama administration, President Obama's administration, had made the decision to leave Iraq despite what the intelligence community was telling us would happen. They were very clear that an al-Qaeda-associated group would rise, that the Iraqi government, the Iraqi people, the Iraqi nation was in a post-combat pre-reconciliation phase. We needed to keep our influence there a little longer and draw down year by year, not draw everyone out at one time. The intelligence community was very clear. They forecasted the rise of a group, uh, you and I know it, as ISIS. And we should have uh, taken their advice on board. Do you think that your resignation did help to stop the withdrawal from Syria? Because U.S. troops remain there now. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll, I'll let the historians sort that out. I, I don't know what all went into the decision the, to reverse that, that call to pull everyone out. But I, I, uh, I just I, I can't answer that. You write that Pakistan is the most dangerous country in the world from mm-hmm. your perspective. Yes. What is the biggest national security threat? Uh, I think the biggest national security threat can be broken uh, into two segments. One is external, and clearly those nations, uh, Russia and China, that are trying to impose their authoritarian models and decisions over other countries, whether it be in the South China Sea or in the Ukraine, uh, in parts of Georgia that Russia's occupied, they've mucked around in our elections. So externally, I would look at those two. And that's why we rewrote the national defense strategy to acknowledge the reality of those nations, not the nations we wanted to be dealing with, but uh, Russia of Putin, the reality, the Russia of President Xi, excuse me, the China of President Xi. But internally, my bigger concern is twofold. It's, It's our growing debt that we're going to transfer to the younger generation uh, with seeming no fiscal discipline. And more than that, it's the, it's the lack of friendliness. It's the increasing contempt I see between Americans who have different opinions. I mean, we're going to have to sit down and remember, if we want this country to survive, we're going to have to work together. And, and that, there's no way around that. That's the way a democracy is set up. So I would, I would break it into those two mm-hmm. fundamental different threats right now. On that note, we will leave it there. I think a lot of people would agree with you like everyone to be a little bit friendlier these days. Uh, One other thing before you go, though, I want to wish you a happy birthday. No, thank you, Margaret. And we will be back in a minute with Democratic Senator Chris Coons. He's standing by live. Are you having trouble sleeping? 
NFL players have been coached. Blue light from smart devices, it can affect your sleep. They'll even wear blue blocker glasses in the evening for improved sleep. Others will try tart cherry juice and smoothies. Not only can it help fight inflammation, but to help you sleep, it's got high amounts of natural melatonin that's beneficial for sleep. The other night, my girlfriend told me I was snoring way too much and even the earplugs weren't helping. So the next day, she took me to the Sleep Number store because if I was snoring, at least she could get a good night's sleep on a Sleep Number bed. Sleep Number beds allow you to adjust on each side to your ideal firmness, comfort, and support. The Sleep Number 360 smart bed senses your movement and automatically adjusts to keep you sleeping comfortably through the night. With Sleep IQ technology inside the bed, it tracks how you're sleeping so you can know every morning how well you've slept and gain insights for your best sleep. Experience the smart, effortless comfort of the Sleep Number 360 smart bed. Find your competitive edge with proven quality sleep from $999. Sleep Number is the official sleep and wellness partner of the NFL. You'll only find Sleep Number at one of their 575 Sleep Number stores nationwide. Find the one nearest you at sleepnumber.com slash cadence. That's sleepnumber.com slash C-A-D-E-N-C-E. Sleep Number. We turn now to Democrat Chris Coons, who's on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He's usually in Delaware when we talk to him, so we're glad to have you here face-to-face. Good morning. Great to be with you. Uh, The Obama administration tried to negotiate with the Taliban. They never got this far. Why do you have a problem with the Trump administration doing it? Uh, I don't have a problem with the Trump administration trying to resolve our very long conflict in Afghanistan uh, through direct negotiations with the Taliban. Uh, And I agree that we should not fully withdraw from Afghanistan until we've got conditions on the ground that will prevent it from becoming once again a haven for terrorists who might attack us, as happened on 9-11. But I disagree uh, with how our president goes about his negotiations around the world. He seems to think that he and he alone individually uh, can negotiate with Kim Jong-un in North Korea, uh, with Xi Jinping in China, or in this case Mm -hmm. with the Taliban. We don't even have an ambassador in Pakistan or in Jordan. I'm concerned that our president isn't listening to his generals, to his diplomats, to the intelligence community. Frankly, that's largely why General Mattis, for whom I have huge respect, resigned in protest, was our president's tendency to make abrupt decisions without knowing the context or the region and without relying on the advice of the skilled diplomats and generals we have. Senator Lindsey Graham was on this program recently and raised a concern that the president wasn't listening to his national security advisors in Afghanistan. Do you think Congress needs to put some kind of backstop in place to keep the troop number at a certain level like he's trying to do? Um, I do think that we need to be engaged in a bipartisan way in making it clear uh, why we value sustained engagement in the world to prevent terrorism from coming to our shores again. Um, This, frankly, is also why I believe Joe Biden would be our best next president, is I think he has uh, deep and wide experience in foreign policy and understands the values of our alliances. You're a Biden surrogate. I am a Biden supporter. Do you know what his plan is to draw down troops or to negotiate an end to the war? I can't speak to the specifics of how he would, but I know that unlike our current president, uh, he would rely upon and listen to the advice of generals and diplomats. Um, I also think that he's learned from his experience. He has spent decades in foreign service, as has General Mattis, uh, as both a senator and a vice president. Look, history moves, and if you don't learn from history, you can't shape it. One of the things I most respect about General Mattis is how deeply read he is in history. One of my concerns about our current president um, is, is his shallow understanding of recent history. Congressman Tim Ryan, who's running against Joe Biden, raised questions this week publicly about uh, whether Biden has the energy and suggested he's declining in clarity. Uh, I I disagree with the congressman. I've known Joe for decades. The reason that I think uh, Joe Biden is consistently top in the polls over and over is because the American people know his heart as I do. Um, They know that he would lead a real change in our place in the world and strengthen our security and prosperity by re-embracing our allies. And that, frankly, in the United States, um, he was called middle-class Joe for decades in the Senate because he's never forgotten where he's from, from Scranton, Pennsylvania and Claymont, Delaware. Um, He is the person who I think can actually deliver the change that our middle class is looking for. That's what Donald Trump ran on, but it's not what he's delivered. I do think a Biden administration would make the changes that would strengthen our middle class. Congress is coming back to work sometime soon. Um, Some would say tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Uh, But the question is whether they're actually getting to work on anything related to gun legislation. Mm -hmm. Um, 
we haven't heard any specifics from the Republican leadership. What are you trying to get done? Uh, well, Senator Pat Toomey and I, uh, Pat's a Republican senator uh, from Pennsylvania. Uh, we've been working hard on our bipartisan bill, the Nick's Denial Notification Act. Tragically, in August, we lost 50 more Americans in mass shooting incidents uh, in Dayton, in El Paso, in Odessa. The Odessa shooter failed a background check. Uh, our bill would make sure that state law enforcement is promptly notified when someone fails a background check. I've been talking with Republicans, with Democrats, with the White House over the August recess. I'm hopeful President Trump will mm-hmm. actually lead on this issue next week. Take a position. Stick with it. The American people deserve no less. We will be tracking that. Thank you very much, Thank Senator Coons, and a very early happy birthday to you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Uh, And we'll be right back in a moment. I used to think that all diet and weight loss plans were the same. Well, not anymore, because I found Noom. Noom is a new and totally different approach to losing weight and getting healthy that uses psychology and small goals to help change your habits. So it's easy to lose the weight and keep it off for good. Noom combines the power of technology with real human support, offering as little or as much help as you want along the way. And since Noom is an app, it's always with you and easy to use, which makes it super easy to stay on track and reach your goals. Plus, it's really simple to get started. Just go online, answer a few quick questions, and they'll create a personalized program just for you. Noom helped me lose my old way of thinking about food and dieting. So what do you have to lose? Visit noom.com slash podcast, N-O-O-M dot com slash podcast, and start your 14-day trial today. Like they say, change your habits, change your mind, and change for good with Noom. Welcome back to Face the Nation. There is big news in our CBS News Battleground Tracker. That's our survey of the Democratic candidates and how they're doing in the early contest. There are 18 states in our aggregate, starting with the Iowa caucus up through Super Tuesday. And there is a big reshuffling in the top tier. Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren is now at 26 percent support just ahead of former Vice President Joe Biden at 25%. The third candidate in our top tier is Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. He has 19% support. In the second tier, those are the candidates with higher single digits. California Senator Kamala Harris now has 8% support. South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg has 6%. Former Texas Congressman Beto O'Rourke has 4%. And former San Antonio Mayor Julian Castro and New Jersey Senator Cory Booker are at 2%. The rest of the field comes in with 1% of the vote or less. Joining us now is CBS News Elections and Surveys Director Anthony Salvanto. Anthony, always good to have you here. Tell me about this reshuffling. Well, this is a story of Elizabeth Warren rising, not necessarily Joe Biden falling. He is about where he has been. But her support and that boost she's getting is as a result of other candidates, now former supporters, moving to Elizabeth Warren. And we've seen this because in this survey, we've gone back and re-interviewed thousands of voters since the summer. And what we see is, in particular, from Kamala Harris, her supporters are now moving to Elizabeth Warren and at twice the rate that they've moved to Joe Biden and to other candidates. So she's clearly picking up some of them. She's consolidating a little bit of the liberal side of the Democratic Party. And also, her electability ratings are on the rise. She's 16 points higher in being perceived by Democrats as being electable, as being able to beat President Trump. And that's always been a key criteria. And lastly, you know, Margaret, I want to emphasize, this is in those early 18 states that you mentioned where the campaigns are really focusing. They're the first ones to hold contests. And so that movement really reflects, I think, where the campaigns are putting their energy. So Warren's gain is Harris's loss. But what does this mean for Joe Biden? Well, there's still some good news here. He's still up in our delegate count. And here's what that means. I know it sounds like it's a far off thing. There's the Democratic convention next summer. But ultimately, this campaign is a fight for delegates. And delegates are handed out to top finishers in all of these states, really any candidate that gets above 15 percent. 
Well, by the time you get through all of those states, Joe Biden is doing well enough. He's racking up a lot of delegates, a lot of votes in places like South Carolina, that he still has the overall delegate lead in that estimate when we take these vote preferences and we translate them into how the delegates would be awarded in the states. So that's important still to actually clinching the nomination. Yeah, by the time you, when you get to next summer and you're at the convention, right. the balloons drop. That's how the delegates are actually awarded to candidates. So let's take a look at some of those key states. Yeah. Um, and we have them here. We'll bring them up on the screen. Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, Nevada. What are they telling you? Iowa is tight. It's still with Biden ahead, just narrowly over Bernie Sanders. But then some news out of New Hampshire, where we know that War, War, uh, Elizabeth Warren has been really ramping up, staffing up, campaigning a lot. She is now very narrowly ahead of Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. That's effectively a three-way race there. South Carolina, I mentioned Joe Biden still has a substantial lead there. African-American support, really critical. And then in Nevada, often overlooked, mm-hmm. but an important early primary, we've got Bernie Sanders narrowly up on Joe Biden. So with this information, what do people do with it? What do they predict going forward? I think what you watch is who has room to move and room to grow, by which I mean, are candidates being considered by voters, even if those voters aren't making them their first choice yet. And what we see is that Elizabeth Warren does seem to have even more room to grow because she's being considered now by more than half of Democratic voters, even the ones who aren't making her their first choice. When they describe the candidates, mm-hmm. not she's seen as electable or increasingly electable, but that's still Joe Biden's strong suit. He's and still seen as the most... Means- being able to beat President Trump in the minds of mm-hmm. in the minds of Democrats, and that's really been a top criteria for them. They want somebody they think can go on next November 2020 and beat President Trump. Thanks so much, Anthony Salvanto. And as always, all of the results are available on our website at facethenation.com. We'll be right back with our political panel. Memories make us laugh and cry, and sometimes cringe when we look back at our fashion choices. But in between flashbacks of bowl cuts and dad jeans, our memories are fading, and so is the old media that holds them. Hi, I'm Adam Baselogger. And I'm Nick Mako, and we're the founders of Legacy Box. Legacy Box is the easiest and safest way to preserve your family memories. Here's how it works. Fill Legacy Box with your outdated media. We professionally digitize and send them back on DVDs, thumb drive, or the cloud. Look, those forgotten home movies, VHS tapes, film reels, and photos are degrading right before your eyes. Experience peace of mind and enjoy reliving the glory days. Join more than half a million families who have already trusted Legacy Box. Save your memories today. Visit LegacyBox.com save. And for a limited time, get 40% off your order. That's LegacyBox.com save for 40% off. LegacyBox.com save. It's time now for our political panel. Jamal Simmons is a Democratic strategist and host on Hill TV. David Frum is a staff writer at The Atlantic. Michael Crowley is a White House correspondent covering foreign policy for The New York Times. And Laura Baron-Lopez is a national political reporter at Politico. Good to have you on Face the Nation. Thank you. We just revealed that battleground tracker that moves Elizabeth Warren into the top spot. Is that also what you've been hearing out there on the campaign trail? Yes, we've seen, uh, as, I've, if, as I've been on the campaign trail, as a number of my colleagues have been, we've seen this slow and steady rise from Warren. She has very systematically put a lot of boots on the ground in places like Iowa and New Hampshire and Nevada. She's been very methodical about getting data on voters. And she has been trying to really utilize her niche, which is I have plans for almost everything. And she's really heavily leaned into that. And it appears to be working because she is slowly gaining on Biden. But it also suggests, according to our polling, that there is more attraction to this idea of the progressive wing of the party, Jamal. Yeah, I think my my math for this election has been pretty consistent. The Democrats need a progressive that they can sell to the center, not a centrist that they have to sell to the progressive, uh, to the progressive wing. I mean, that's sort of what the John Kerry election was in 2004. That's sort of what the Hillary Clinton election was in 2016. Those didn't work out very well. Um, I would just say this. If you look at the history of uh, the New Hampshire primary, then five times a Massachusetts official has run in the New Hampshire primary, Democrat and Republican, since 1988. Each one of those people either won the the New Hampshire primary 
or they came in second, like Romney, but all of them got over 30%. Mitt Romney got the lowest at about 31, 32% when he ran in 2008. So the idea, the, the probability is that Elizabeth Warren will win the New Hampshire primary. What does that do to Joe Biden, whose entire uh, election is predicated on mm-hmm. him being the winner when he may not be winning? David, you saw in just the past few hours another entrant into the Republican race. Mark Sanford, the former congressman from South Carolina, wants to challenge President Trump. Trump campaign says, eh, it's irrelevant. Is um, it? Well, they have certainly made it so that Mark Sanford will not be able to vote for himself in his own state's primary because they have shut down the state primary. Donald Trump is so popular in the Republican Party that he does not want Republicans to vote on his renomination. That's how popular he is. Um, there... Uh, the, the story of the Republican it's Party. It's not unprecedented that the caucuses have been canceled. In some it is, it is not unprecedented, but it is something where a, when a president wants to demonstrate uh, the this, this strength of his support in the party, that these kinds of acclamations can can be useful. Um, the key to uh, Donald Trump's position in the Republican Party is a problem of, of fractions, which is that he is getting a bigger and bigger share of a smaller and smaller party. Bigger and bigger share of a smaller and smaller party, um, but yet not willing to count him out. Um, well, that he's going to be the nominee, I think that we count him in. Um, no, but it, potential re-election. His, his potential re-election, um, I think, suddenly looks worse this fall uh, than it did this summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the story um, that... Things are beginning to go wrong. The price of his policies is arriving. Um, the bread and butter issues, you can just see everywhere around us the signs, not of economic trouble, actually, but of economic warning. And we're seeing consumer confidence leaking. Um, we are seeing the financial markets reacting badly. And we're seeing that, that the things that the president might try to do to save the economy are temperamentally unavailable to him. That, he, that to find some way of reaching some kind of agreement with the Chinese on taking off the table the stupid things that we're arguing about, like dip, washing machines, and focusing on the important things, intellectual property and the security of the 5G 5G network. He can't do that. Um, And the consequences of his inability are affecting real people's wages, which are now flat, and soon will be affecting real people's jobs. And uh, Michael Crowley, President Trump has sold himself as a deal maker. We just saw another potential deal literally fall apart in the past 24 hours with Afghanistan. Yeah. It, well, first of all, what an amazing turn of events. Uh, I think that much of Washington was prepared for a big announcement that they had reached a conclusion. Now everything is kind of in pieces on the floor. And it's an example, I think, of how, you know, the president practices this kind of wild seat of the pants diplomacy. Um, it reminds me a lot in broad strokes of his approach to North Korea, the North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un. You know, I'm going to go meet with this guy who had basically never been with, met another foreign leader before. Everyone was astonished. You can't do that. Yes, I can. Um, this Camp David thing would have been the same thing. You know, this is this is crazy. What are you talking about? The Taliban is going to come to America. They're going to come to Camp David a few days before 9-11. And this is how the president operates. And I think he loves to kind of gobsmack us and also thinks that by kind of breaking through these walls, things become possible. But, Margaret, uh, we're not seeing the results. I mean, his diplomacy with North Korea has essentially gone nowhere. Uh, Kim Jong-un is still producing nuclear material at a pretty steady pace launching short-range missiles. He, yes, he has stopped some tests. And Afghanistan now, uh, you know, this peace process is in tatters, and who knows what happens next. So this president's improvisational, wild style, I think, you know, earlier in his administration, some people thought, wow, he might actually be able to get some things done that other presidents couldn't with their conventional ways. I think there's a lot more skepticism about that right now. And yet this is a popular thing to run on for Democrats. The idea of ending the war, bringing the boys home is something every single candidate says they're going to do. Very few have actually detailed how they're going to do it. Does this force Democrats to answer those questions now or do we just move on to the next crisis? I I think a bit of both. I think you might see some Democrats trying to answer that, uh, to strike another contrast with Trump. But again, a lot of uh, what's going on on the during the in the primary race right now is very insulated. They aren't always reacting to Trump or what he is doing in the immediate sense. They're staying focused on the plans and the visions that they want to bring to the voters. And this may be an opportunity for uh, all normal politicians to reintroduce the. 
the American people, the basic concepts of operationality. Now, there are reasons why these kinds of discussions are handled at the special envoy or assistant secretary level and not brought to Camp David until there's a success to announce, um, that, that you do not commit the president's time, and maybe Democratic candidates could begin. Because I think one of the great thing challenges for the country in 2021, if there's a Democratic president, is all this progressive energy you describe um, is going to find itself what, running into a whole series of objective walls a probable Republican majority in the Senate. Terrible fiscal problems, even if there isn't a recession. Much worse fiscal problems if there is. Um, the intractability of the health care problem. Uh, so I want that, that the, this moment, which is not central to people's voting concerns, is a good moment to say these problems are hard, they are difficult, we are not making promises, we certainly are going to do our best, mm-hmm. but we're going to do our best through channels, and we're going to have a special envoy in Afghanistan, not the president doing seat-of-the-pants diplomacy, as Michael calls it. Jamal, I want to ask you as well about, you know, gaffes, I guess, is the word we can use uh, on the campaign trail. Kamala Harris, uh, who we showed in our poll, was uh, losing some ground to the benefit of Elizabeth Warren, um, had to apologize for something she said at a rally this week. Or let's listen to what she said. There needs to be accountability. I mean, what are you going to do in the next one year to diminish the mentally retarded action of this guy? (laughs) Well said. (laughs) Well said. I played that so people could judge for themselves. What was she laughing at? You know, it was a bad moment. And I think her campaign would have come off better if she had said after this when they asked her, you know what, I reacted poorly to that. I wish I hadn't, instead of saying she hadn't heard it. But that's what happens in campaigns. Campaigns have bad moments. Elizabeth Warren is still trying to get past the Pocahontas and the DNA and all that other stuff. Campaigns have bad moments. The next question is, what are you offering the people? Right? Donald Trump is going to say all the things that it is he's going to say about the Democratic nominee. The question is, what are you offering people that they want to be out there and before, and they're going to go and rally behind you because of that? despite whatever mistakes it is that you've made. And I think people are still waiting to hear from Kamala Harris a concise message about what those things are. Excuse me, about what those things are. Carly, um, Sharpie Gate. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for asking. Right. uh, What do we make of it? Well, look, you know, we've all, uh, we know the details by now of the president taking a Sharpie to his hurricane map. And um, on some level, it's a total theater of the absurd. Uh, On another, I think it's, uh, you know, encapsulates American politics right now. Um, You know, the president essentially uh, tried to distort fact. He got the facts wrong, then tried to retroactively distort them. Looks like he enlisted government officials to back him up, uh, wouldn't back down, showed, number one, a complete obsession with media coverage, and number two, an incredibly thin skin. But I think that, you know, there's 40, maybe 40 and change percent of the country that thinks this was the media, this is the, the White House's line, you know, this is the media going after Trump relentlessly, making too much out of something that wasn't that big of a deal. And this is like this rinse, wash, and repeat cycle. We we have in the country where now about half the country thinks the president basically isn't playing with a full deck and some large number thinks that he can't get a fair shake and it's going to come right down to November and I think be a close call as to which one of these sides uh, tilts higher. But isn't the National Weather Service uh, event the bigger part of this story? The fact that the president said something that wasn't right and the scientists and the government are being compelled to, one, not contradict the president and then, two, put out a statement that seems to contradict other scientists and the government. Well, and also the president's own defense also raises an interesting point. The president's defense is, I heard at one point that Alabama Mm -hmm. was at risk. By the time I made my statement, Alabama was no longer at risk, and I insisted it was. I said, well, what were you doing in that interval? And the answer was, I was taking no briefings because I was golfing. Mm -hmm. Um, And and I think that uh, that these these stories, even the small ones, they reveal something about a unique process of government in which the president does not take his responsibility seriously. It's not just a matter of lying. It's a matter of not doing the work, and that's what necessarily the lie. Laura, uh, there were a number of stories regarding controversies surrounding Trump properties from the vice president uh, staying at one in Ireland uh, to what we are now looking at with an investigation in Congress into properties in Scotland. Tell us what we need to know. 
Right. So the House Judiciary and House Democrats as a whole are expanding their scope and they want to define very clearly what their impeachment inquiry would look like. And so on top of potential obstruction of justice uh, issues that came out from the Mueller report, they are adding to that by wanting to look into whether or not the president has violated the emoluments clause, uh, whether or not he is profiting off of the presidency with stays like Pence's in Dunebeg in Ireland, as well as the president's uh, suggestion that the G7 stay in Durrell uh, at the Durrell Resort in Florida next year. And so Democrats want to add those to their impeachment inquiry. And we could see a vote as early as next week on on adding this uh, extended scope. We will watch for that this week. Are the Trump hotels a presidential tip jar? That's what we need to know. (laughs) We'll we'll leave it there. Uh, Thank you. Um, We'll be back in a moment. What's your next adventure? Everyone deserves a chance to do what they love. Pacific Life helps you reach financial goals while you go after your personal ones. Plans change over time, and your financial solutions can too. Pacific Life has a variety of financial solutions that can help you complement your life goals and passions while managing the uncertainties. Backed by more than 150 years of experience, you can count on Pacific Life to be there so you can go out and keep living your best life. Pacific Life is one of the most dependable and experienced insurers in the industry and has been named one of the 2019 world's most ethical companies by the Ethisphere Institute. The freedom to go after whatever is next for you? That's the power of Pacific. Ask a financial professional about how Pacific Life can help give you the freedom to do what you love or visit www.pacificlife.com. We're back now with journalist Garrett Graff. He has a new book out called The Only Plane in the Sky. It's a detailed account of the morning of September 11th, 2001, told by those who lived through it. Garrett, uh, it's good to have you here. You know, in reading this, it was very powerful. These are first-person accounts. It's an oral history. Why did you write it this way? It's not a narrative. It's an oral history. Uh, And the goal was very much to capture the way that Americans experienced that day. You know, uh, we're coming up now, this week will be the 18th anniversary of the attack. And we're watching this uh, traumatic moment in American history slip from memory to history. And when we say never forget, I think we fail to remember just how traumatic, chaotic, and fearful that day actually really was to experience. So the goal was to tell the story, not the facts of the day, which we all know and remember, but the experience of the day, how Americans lived it coast to coast, morning to night. And reliving it is painful for a lot of people. Why do you think it's important to go through that? Well, I think you saw it actually even just this morning. We are still living with the consequences of that day. We are living, um, you know, still with the world that that day shaped. And it was shaped by the fear, the trauma, and the chaos that the policymakers experienced that day and their decision and their dedication that that should never happen again. And, you know, we we now see American servicemen and women who were born after that attack deploying for the first time to the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq that that day spawned. And you talk not just to policymakers, people in the room, you talk to everyday folks who, who touched this in some way, including, and this, it stopped me when I hit it, the airline attendant who checked in, Mohammed Atta. Tell me about that. Yeah, and, and there are so many people that those attacks touched and affected, uh, including, you know, the, the ticket attendants in Dulles and Newark uh, and Boston and in Portland who checked in the hijackers. And they have these distinct memories of interacting with the hijackers and actually even in Portland and Dulles helping get them on board because they were showing up late to their flights that day. Warning them, hurry up, you're going to miss the flight. You're going to miss your plane, Mr. Atta. I mean, just a chilling, chilling comment in retrospect. Is there a character in here whose story really stood out to you? Uh, there are a lot of them um, because of sort of just what a human experience that day really was. I mean, a day like 9-11 strips away so much of the posturing and the artifice 
you know, from policymakers uh, to first responders to the ordinary office workers who showed up in New York uh, or the Pentagon sort of expecting a normal Tuesday and found themselves amid that tragedy. You spoke for, uh, to a number of people, including someone who hadn't spoken at all previously to the press, Commander Anthony Barnes. Now, he was the liaison between the Pentagon and Vice President Dick Cheney, who was commanding things that day. What did you learn from him? So uh, Commander Barnes uh, was sort of the director of the White House bunker on 9-11. Um, you know, the bunker under the North Lawn that is operational 24 hours a day has never been used before or since except for the morning of 9-11 when Vice President Cheney was hustled into that. Because remember, they thought Flight 93 was coming to hit the White House or the Capitol. And so I talked to people uh, and tell the stories in the book of the people who thought that they were going to die at the White House that morning. Uh, Commander Barnes was the Navy officer who was the one who actually asked Vice President Cheney for the authority to shoot down the hijacked airliners. He's never spoken before, and I spoke to him, and he said that he asked the Vice President three times because he knew just how momentous that order actually was, and he wanted to make sure that there was no confusion. And he recalls sort of just how annoyed Vice President Cheney was by that third time because Cheney had made the decision and knew that it was the right thing to do. A surreal order to be given. A surreal day from start to finish. I mean, you know, we tell this very neat story about 9-11 now that we know the whole attack took place in 102 minutes from the first crash to the collapse of the second tower. We didn't know that on 9-11. And that's one of the things that I really tried to capture in the book was well into the afternoon. We were still dealing with planes that we thought were hijacked. And we didn't know whether al-Qaeda had a whole other wave of attacks planned for the next day or the next month. I thought it was interesting towards the end of the book where you talk to school children yeah. and how they remember it. Um, it. Just small children and their memories. Uh, it's a great read. Thank you for sharing it with us. Thanks for having me today. That's it for us today, and we honor those who died on 9-11 and after that, protecting U.S. interests as well as all the families they left behind. Until next week, for Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, former Secretary of Defense General James Mattis, and Democratic Senator Chris Coons. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter and Instagram. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 6 p.m. Eastern every Sunday. Have you ever wondered how to say good morning in Italian? Or what is goodbye in French? You can ask Alexa. Just say, what is happy birthday in German? Or how do you say hello in Japanese? Do you want to know how to say I love you in Spanish? Ask Alexa and start learning a new language today. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds, but none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. 
I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts.